Let's hear God's word now from Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Amen. We'll end our reading there. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we ask you now to speak to us from your word. May we understand the point of this question that the Lord Jesus raised. May we appreciate the scriptural background to it. And, O Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit himself would guide us to draw the right conclusion that it might come with thundering power to our hearts to show us that in the Lord Jesus we genuinely do have what we need. In his name we pray. Amen. As you recall, in this section of the Gospel of Mark, there have been a series of challenges or questions to the Lord Jesus. He was challenged with regard to his authority. He was challenged with a couple of different questions. And he has prevailed in these arguments. He has silenced those who would seek to put him in a bad light or who would seek to trip him up in his words. He also had a more sympathetic question where he was able to demonstrate his grasp of the Bible, where he was able to demonstrate his understanding of the internal logic and coherence of God's word, and where he was able to encourage somebody in the right direction. And now everybody has fallen silent. No one dared question him, as it says in the end of verse 34, just before our passage. Every attempt to confuse or to entrap him has failed. The Lord Jesus has prevailed in his words. He has been justified in his speech. You might remember that the Lord Jesus announced that as a general principle in Matthew. He said, by your words, you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. You might remember also that the Apostle Paul calls upon ministers to demonstrate sound speech that cannot be condemned. Well, here the Lord Jesus is our perfect example. The one who achieved that difficult goal brilliantly and completely. There was nothing in his speech that could be condemned. And so now the enemies, those who are hostile to him, they have no handle. They have nothing to seize on to try again. In that sense, they have been defeated. So now it is time for the Lord Jesus, so to speak, to go on the offensive, not in an unkind way, not in a harsh way, but to demonstrate that even though they have been trying to trip him up, even though these are the experts, he references the scribes, those who spent their lives studying the scriptures, that there was much that they did not know, that there were questions they could not answer. And so here we see a different phase of Christ the controversialist. You know, in our own times, sometimes people who argue are seen as being mean or being negative in some ways. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of arguing that goes on that we would all be better spared. That is completely unnecessary. Sometimes your best bet with an argument is not to have it. But there are arguments that are worth having. 
And arguments about what is and what is not true are worth having at least if somebody is open to being convinced, if somebody is open to learning. And so the Lord Jesus is willing to engage in argument. He's willing to go back and forth. He's willing to show where people are wrong. He's willing to ask questions of his own. He's willing to push them and to challenge them and to make them think. And that is part of what he does here. Christ, the controversialist, has successfully defended himself, but he doesn't stop with defense. He also goes on the offense. And, you know, that is worthwhile to learn because sometimes if... Now, this has not happened for a couple of years now. They've been sending letters instead of knocking on doors. But if a Jehovah's Witness were to happen to come to your door, sometimes we spend so much time defending that we don't realize, you know what, it's also possible to go on the offensive. It's possible to challenge them. It's possible to make them think and make them answer as well. And whether it's Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they have particular scripts that they've internalized, that they've been brought about. And if you can get them to go off script, sometimes you can get them to think. With both of them, it can be handy to ask about salvation by grace. And if you are able to share with them a few texts, like from Ephesians 2 or from Romans 11, that speak about salvation by grace, often they don't have a prepared answer for that. And in asking that kind of question that they don't have a prepared answer for, you're imitating the Lord Jesus in the way that you engage with people who come, in a sense, trying to convey to us false doctrine, trying to trip us up in what we know and what we believe. But that's an application, and that's by the way. The question the Lord Jesus raises here is about the identity of the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one. You remember, of course, that God's people had an expectation that someone would come who would be anointed by God. And of course, we know that the Lord Jesus was anointed to be our prophet, priest, and king. Very good. The Lord Jesus was anointed to be our prophet, priest, and king. And so when he's speaking about the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, all of that is baked into it. But at this time, the Jews especially focused on the kingly aspect, and they tended to think of a king in the pattern of David, a king who would come like David. And you remember how David conquered the Philistines and freed Israel from the fear of Philistine incursions and oppressions. Well, many people had that sort of an expectation for what would happen when someone came, and they were looking for somebody who would be not only from David's line, a physical son of David, although certainly that, but they were also looking for somebody who would be in the mold, in the stamp of David, somebody who would act like David did. How was David first brought to widespread attention in Israel? Well, he killed the giant Goliath. He overthrew the one who had defied the armies of the living God. And he went out against him with a sling, but by the spirit of God in the name of the Lord. And David prevailed. So many people were expecting something similar to that. And so son of David, and, and you can see where they got this in the Old Testament. You can see this coming from the book of Zechariah. You can see this coming from the book of Ezekiel, where somebody like David, and of course it comes from the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. 
They're expecting a son of David. They're expecting Messiah to be son of David. They're not entirely wrong, are they? The Lord Jesus, who was anointed to be prophet, priest, and king, who did come in the room of his father David, who acquired the throne of his father David, as we're told in Luke, well, he was a descendant of David. He was of the seed of David, according to the flesh, Paul tells us in the book of Romans. And he was like David in many ways, where David killed the giant. The Lord Jesus overthrew a much more significant giant, one who had defied the armies of the living God in quite a more dramatic way than Goliath himself. The Lord Jesus overthrew the devil, the ultimate giant, if you will. So they're not completely wrong, but their ideas about what son of David meant left them with a puzzle. And the puzzle was this. If the Messiah, if the Christ is the son of David, what do you do with the reality that David calls him Lord? That's not what you would normally expect. It would be extremely unusual, to say the least, for a father to say to a son or grandson or great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Lord, to call him my Lord. And yet that is exactly what David did. So this presents them with a theological question. And it's a theological question that they can't answer based on their presuppositions. You remember the Lord Jesus raises this question, but nobody answers it. Nobody speaks up. Nobody raises their hand and says, I know the answer to that one. They need to have their ideas expanded before they're going to be able to answer this question. Now, Before we move on, I just want to mention this very briefly in passing. Do you remember the context where this is occurring? What was the previous dialogue that the Lord Jesus had? Well, it was, which is the first commandment of all? And in teaching about that, the Lord Jesus repeated the Shema, that great call in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he raises a theological question about how David calls his own son Lord that can only be answered by understanding that somehow the Lord Jesus is included in the oneness of God. This is, in some ways, this is a really challenging theological question. It's not surprising that at this point in the history of Revelation, Nobody could throw their hand up and say, I know, I know the answer to that. But we have it now in our catechism. More information has been given to us. The church has digested it. The church has discussed it. And now we are able to say there is only one God. But in the unity of the Godhead, there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In order to answer this theological question, In context, you need to know that God's unity, God's oneness, does not mean that there's not this multiplicity, this trinity of persons. But then you also need to know that the Lord Jesus is two natures in one person. So you can describe him according to one nature, and that's true. But you can also describe him according to the other nature, and that's also true. 
the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ. They're not some artificial invention that the church made up, that theologians made up in order to make life more difficult for ordinary people. They are the only way to put together all the information that scripture gives us. And the Lord Jesus raises that point right here. If the Messiah is David's son, and he is, how can he be David's Lord, which he also is? Well, you need to understand that Jesus is God and man, two distinct natures in one person. This is the kind of mediator and redeemer that we seek, one who is true man, but at the same time is more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. Now, they couldn't answer this theological question. It's the grace of God. It's the fact of more revelation. And it's the wonderful inheritance that we have in the history of theology that enables us to answer this question in a small space with great precision and just a few words. So that's all something for which we, could be, we should be thankful. Now, the Lord Jesus draws this question not just from the scribal discussions. He say, how do the scribes say that the Christ, that Messiah, is David's son? But, of course, the Lord Jesus also appeals to Scripture. So in this passage, we see the Lord Jesus as a controversialist, as one who engages in argument. We see him as a theologian, as one who understands the truth, but we also see his view of Scripture. And this is very important, so please notice this carefully. Look at the very beginning of verse 36. David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, and then he's going to quote Psalm 110, which, by the way, is the psalm that is most often quoted in the New Testament. In some ways, you could say that Psalm 110 is the most basic passage for the New Testament's doctrine of Christ, which makes it pretty important. Okay, so when the Lord Jesus quotes Psalm 110, he attributes it to David, but does he limit it to David? No, he says, David said by the Holy Spirit, Now, 100 years ago, and even 50 years ago, there was a lot of controversy, there was a lot of conflict over the doctrine of Scripture. There were some who defended that Scripture was infallible and inerrant, and there were other people who argued against that. And that was a big part of the divisions that were happening in the 19-teens and the 1920s and the 1930s, divisions in which, of course, our own church participated. Now, these days, there's not quite as much controversy about those things, but sadly, it's not because everybody has come around to the right view. The battle lines have shifted, but it is very important that we continue to stand strong, that we continue to hold to the view of Scripture that the Lord Jesus had. So let's break that down a little bit. What was the Lord Jesus' view of scripture. We're going to focus on Psalm 110 because that's the passage he cited. But what we say about Psalm 110 applies to the rest of the Old Testament. Jesus understood that there was a human author, right? David himself said by the Holy Spirit. And he recognizes the importance of that. We have to take the historical figure of David seriously. 
We have to remember who David was. So how, according to the Lord Jesus, how should we study scripture? Well, we should study scripture as telling us true facts about true people and who wrote them is a relevant consideration. In other words, we should study scripture historically. We should understand that it arose in a given situation. We should understand that who the author was matters. At least it matters sometimes. There are some parts of scripture that are anonymous. Like we don't know who wrote the book of Esther. And that's okay. But if we know who the author is, that's something important to be taken in mind for interpretation. In that sense, you could say that the Bible is a human book. David, the author David, contributes from his own experience, from his own insight, from his own understanding, from his own personality. David was a gifted poet, and you see that in the way he writes. The human element of Scripture is important. The historical element of Scripture is important. Scripture didn't come floating down out of the clouds. It came through people. Peter says this, right? Holy men of God spoke as they were moved or as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You have this expression, the word of the Lord by the prophet Jeremiah, for instance, in Second Chronicles and in Ezra. There is a human element in Scripture, and we will mess up the interpretation of Scripture if we don't take that into consideration. But is there only a human element in Scripture? Is Scripture only the record of what religious geniuses experienced? No. When David said this, who was speaking through David? How did David say that the Messiah would be his Lord? He said it by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul teaches us. He says all Scripture is inspired or is breathed out by God so that the word of Jeremiah or the word of David or the word of Paul or the word of Moses, it comes through them. It reflects them. But at the very same time, it is absolutely the word of God, what God meant to say, even down to its details. God is the ultimate author of scripture. When we come to the Bible, Are we dealing with the words of men? Well, in the sense that their personality is is evident, in the sense that they were used to write it, in the sense that it arose through them and in their historical setting, yes. But can we limit it to being the word of man? No, we cannot. Not if we're going to follow the Lord Jesus, we can't. For the Lord Jesus, Psalm 110, was given by the Holy Spirit and the whole rest of the Bible was given by the Holy Spirit as well. If we went to have the mind of Christ With regard to the Bible, we must receive it as the word of God. And what does that mean? Well, that means that we don't get to say, you know what? This feels like a mistake to me. On the basis of my vast archaeological learning, I can confidently declare that this is not true. Does your archaeological learning put you in a situation to disagree with the Holy Spirit? Does your understanding of ancient Semitic languages give you that ability? You know the answer to that. No human attainment ever gives you the ability to say, the Holy Spirit was wrong. That's not a coherent sentence. The Holy Spirit cannot be wrong. 
Now, we can be wrong in how we understand what the Holy Spirit said. In that sense, we can be open to being corrected in what we say the Bible says, because if we're paraphrasing, we could always make a mistake. But did the Holy Spirit make a mistake? You know, a lot of people say, well, there's no way that there were that many Israelites. There's no way that there were 600,000 Israelites. That's got to be a mistake. It's not a mistake. Maybe it's a round number. Maybe there's something else going on, but it's not a mistake. The Holy Spirit put it there on purpose. And, you know, I'm using that particular illustration, but apply this to whatever you want. Did God make any mistakes in writing the Bible? No. So what do you call that? You call that inerrant. That's the word for it. Could God have made a mistake in writing the Bible? No. What's the word for that? Infallible. Because the Bible is inspired, because it's breathed out by God, it is infallible and it is inerrant. And that means that we don't get to say, well, I don't like that part. Well, that seems wrong to me. Well, that was then, but this is now. Well, we've progressed as a species and we don't need this anymore. There are parts of the Bible that were given temporarily. One easy example is when Israel was still in the wilderness, there were certain regulations they had to follow, which then didn't apply once they entered the land of Canaan. The form of those regulations was changed for a new situation. So we can all acknowledge that. But what God gave was inspired. What God gave was perfect. What God gave was infallible. And God did not make any mistakes. So when you come to the Bible... This is the word of God. Now, in order to understand it rightly, you need to understand David and Jeremiah and so forth. Yes. But you can never lose sight of this is the word of God. And even people who have studied the Bible very carefully make horrific mistakes in interpretation when they forget that David said what he said by the Holy Spirit. So let me challenge everybody here to have the mind of Christ when it comes to Scripture. For the Lord Jesus, it wasn't just, well, this is David and his opinion. It was what David said by the Holy Spirit. It was authoritative. He says in John 10, the Scripture cannot be broken. Oh, may that be our mindset when we come to the Bible. So we're not picking and choosing. So we're not saying, well, I like this, but I don't like that. But may we submit ourselves to it Because it is the word of God. It's the word of God through men, but that doesn't change the reality that it is absolutely, and in every particular, the word of God. So we have the theological question, how can the Messiah be David's son and David's Lord? We have the scriptural conundrum. David says this by the Holy Spirit. So you know that David couldn't be wrong in what he says by the Holy Spirit. We've already answered the question. David's son can be David's Lord because this one person is two natures. He is God the Son. He's from the seed of David according to the flesh. But he's more than that. He is the word who was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the inevitable conclusion, that this Messiah must be more. He's not just the son of David. He is the son of David, but he's also David's Lord. He is David's God. 
because he's God, the Son. Now, nobody answered the Lord Jesus when he said these things, but the common people heard him gladly. Some of this may just have been they were tired of the scribes throwing their weight around and acting like the experts, so they enjoyed seeing people shown up. You know, we all have a little bit of that in us where even our favorite expert, we like to see them baffled, we like to see them bewildered, we like to see them thrown for a loop. That's just kind of fun, you know? It's a reminder that they're human beings too. So there may have been a little bit of that, but it also gives us something of a general pattern. This is not universally true, but it's generally true. Paul talks about this in Corinthians. He says, not many wise, not many mighty have been called. God has chosen, as James says, the poor of this world. Where does the gospel find most logic? Well, among the common people, among ordinary folks. The elites generally do not embrace the gospel. That, now, that's not a reason not to preach it to them. There are exceptions, and we need to preach the gospel to the elites as well because we don't know who's going to be the exception. But as a general rule, what we can expect is that the common people will hear the message of Christ more gladly than the elites. And that's true whether they're academic elites or spiritual elites or some combination like the scribes here on this occasion. I'm pretty sure that the scribes didn't like this question, but the common people heard him gladly. Now, what do we do with all of this? What do we do with this short passage? Well, it reminds us, of course, what is a starting point? What is our authority? Where do we appeal when we have a question? Well, we appeal to the word of God. This is what God has given us for determining good and evil, right and wrong, true and false. This is our standard. The Holy Spirit speaking in scripture is the judge of religious controversies. We come like Christ to the scripture. That's our appeal. That's our touchstone. But that's not the only thing we do with this passage, of course. We look to Christ. We look to the one who is such a marvel, such a mystery, that in his own person he can be, at the same time, David's son and David's Lord. We look to a Christ who transcends us. And maybe people think, well, you know, that's not really relevant. I mean, I'm dealing with all these different problems. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. How does it help me to know that Jesus is the Messiah, David's son and David's Lord? Well, let me just suggest this. If nothing else, it shows you that in Christ, there is the resolution of riddles and puzzles and conundrums. The reason the scribes couldn't answer this question was that they didn't really know Christ. Christ is the one in whom all things are summarized. Christ is the one in whom all things are reconciled. Do you have questions? Do you have concerns? Do you have anxieties? Do you have worries? Do you have fears? Go deeper into Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many questions will be answered, not directly, but indirectly. Sometimes they'll be put in perspective and you'll say, you know what? I don't need to know the answer to that right now. Other times you will find the solution. But whatever your heart is seeking, whatever you're missing, whatever you feel short of, the answer really is Christ. What do you need today? You need the anointed one. 
You need your perfect prophet, priest, and king. You need the Lord Jesus Christ in all the glory of his person, in the perfection of his work, in the fullness of his offices, and in the beautiful gentleness and meekness and tenderness of his heart towards his people. Amen.